Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is the beginning of October, October the 2nd, 2023. I happened to be in London on the road today. Last night, I saw a great movie called Fremont by... uh, an Iranian, Babak Jalali. It's the classic immigrant story, except it's anything but classic. The immigrant story to America, of course, most immigrant stories of America are about transformation. But this is about an Afghan woman who doesn't change, who refuses to change, who's obstinately the same. It's a remarkable movie. The only bad review I could find was uh, from the Washington Post, of course, which is a newspaper obsessed with change. And if things don't improve, then there's something wrong. Uh, But it's a a most un-American film uh, because there's no transformation. And in the end, the film feels and looks like Afghanistan. So uh, this woman, this young woman's obstinacy has transported Afghanistan, that most unchanging of places, to the United States. All this is a good introduction uh, to our guest today. Uh, Leon uh, uh, Weaseltier is the editor of Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Regular viewers of the show know that it's a sponsor of the show. Uh, They're out with a new issue, and Leon has a wonderful essay called Same But Different, Uh, A polemic, I guess, in a sense, and maybe he can correct me on this, uh, a polemic against transformation, a most un-American essay. Leon, who is a most un-American fellow, is joining us from Washington, D.C. Leon, is it fair that this essay is a polemic? I always think in terms, but you're a bit too sophisticated to be a polemicist. Oh, no, not not at all. Sometimes a polemic is what it's called for. There, it's it's a different kind of polemic. It's a it's a kind of philosophical polemic because its targets are not uh, they're not concrete political people or events, uh, but it is it is a polemic against the 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 cult of transformation and change that is one of the characteristic features of American life. Uh, and it, it, you know, it's. It, I try to elaborate certain philosophical arguments against it, but also I have to say, I have, for reasons of temperament, always been extremely averse to the to the American religion of change, to the idea that change is always our friend, to the idea that transformation, as such, is always progress, to the idea that. Uh, that the most important imperative in life is, as the Americans like to say, to move on. Uh, I'm against moving on in many cases. Yeah, you're right, uh, Leon. Some memorable uh, sentences. The shorter, the better. You're always best, I think, with your short sentences. We are a teleological nation. But as you suggest, you're not a teleological fellow. You've you suggest at the beginning of the essay that you've always fought what you call the the romance of transformation. Why is transformation a, a romantic notion? Because it promises people uh, more lives than they have. 
because it is exciting in the way that most change can be, uh, because the belief in it, um, in most cases, unburdens one of any serious examination of what is valuable and what is not valuable about where one already is. Uh, it's change is exhilarating. There's no question about it. And it's so exhilarating that it becomes an addiction. I see this in the personal lives of people. I see it in cultural phenomena. Uh, certainly since the, um, the imposition of Silicon Valley's alleged wisdom upon the country and the world, change has become uh, sacred, sacred. Uh, and if one is not uh, deeply receptive and uh, extremely enthusiastic about the new, one is regarded as some sort of arch reactionary conservative who is either afraid or dogmatic. And whereas there are such people, uh, I'm not one of them, and many people who are not change junkies are also not among them. Leon, you're also a very moral writer that oozes from the page, for better or worse. Are you, and I, I'm not a philosopher, but there seems to be something perhaps Kantian about the assumptions you make in this piece, because if we never change, if we always are who we are, then we're born with morality. You're rejecting the Lockean notion that we take on experience, aren't you, in this essay? Well, it's never. It's not the case that we never change, and nor, nor obviously... Am I espousing that we never change? Uh, we change all the time, trivially and significantly. Um, you know, the question of how we analyze and evaluate some of those changes is one of the most um, uh, repercussive uh, in our personal lives and in our culture, uh, because if we get it wrong, if we if we value changes that we shouldn't value, we are being just as, uh, we, we, we are traducing our possibilities, our potential, just as much as we would uh, if we undervalued change. So, um, no, it's not that we never change. It's that uh, there are, it takes a lifetime or most of a lifetime, at least in my experience, to establish what one thinks and feels about being in the world. And over time, through experience and reflection and reading and writing and uh, art and music and philosophy and so on, uh, hopefully in times of peace, uh, one does eventually come to have a pretty solid sense of what one thinks is valuable and not valuable, what one thinks is good and what one thinks is bad and so on. And uh, I don't, and I have arrived, again, speaking personally, because you were right, there is a personal 
subtext or semi-subtext in this essay, uh, I'm satisfied that even though my worldview is riddled with doubts and uncertainties and not not strong enough to be dogmatic, I hope, I am satisfied that I've arrived at an understanding of human experience and historical experience that is adequate, that is defensible, that I really am not looking to reject in favor of the hot new mantra from anywhere. So um, I, that, that's what I mean. It's the reluctance to be changed. You know, I, there is, for many years I worked, I did some very interesting and original research, which I began to write up and may finish, about the Jewish notion of messianism. And, you know, the common, the common perception, the common assumption about Jewish messianism is that the idea of the Messiah was one of Judaism's gifts to the world. But that is only partially correct if you study the history of messianism within Judaism. What you discover is that, is that, one, that more precisely put, Judaism's gift was this. Uh, the desire for redemption and the simultaneous reluctance to be redeemed. Uh, I have, a, you know, the draft of a little book that I intend to call A Passion for Waiting. It's taken from a phrase by Walter Benjamin about a cafe, a very charming sentence. And uh, I, you know, temperamentally and in terms of what I've discovered about my tradition and also this has been ratified by my understanding of liberalism. As you know, I proudly call myself a liberal. Uh, all of these things have inclined me to be reluctant to be redeemed, and certainly to be reluctant to be redeemed many times in my life. Uh, so the, the, that, those are the roots of this. It's really a skepticism about how um, catastrophic transformation can be, about how cheap and easy transformation can be, and about how it, 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 it undervalues, it undervalues a lot that has been accomplished over the generations in terms of meaning and understanding and so on. Uh, yeah, I wonder, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about Israel versus America, yeah. Israel as America, but I wonder if um, the, the nastiest critique of Israel would be that it's learned from America to become a teleological nation. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, Israel, certainly the messianic elements on the right in Israel have never been as prominent or as powerful as they are now. And they are really dangerous and religiously obnoxious. Um, that's certainly true. But in America, too, we have a great, we have millions of messianists of a different kind. Uh, the great thing about the American system, in my view, one of the great things in its original formulation, which I regard 
as essentially a liberal formulation, certainly in this sense, is that it renounced an eschatological idea of the state. I mean, that, that it, 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 all, all the eschatologies, all the religious ones, all the secular ones, uh, they, never, they never got hold of the government here. Even if religious people rule us and believe that they themselves will be personally redeemed by Jesus or somebody else, uh, or will be resurrected, uh, or will come back for many more lives, none of this takes place at the level of the state. Uh, so that, um, and Madison's wisdom right. was to recognize that disagreement and conflict were an unalterable and ineradicable feature of human affairs, and that people uh, will not always obey what Lincoln called their better angels. They will often obey their worse angels. Yeah, as it happens, Leon, we just did a show with Peter Slen of C-SPAN. They're running a series about the 10 books that shaped America, and we just did The Federalist, literally, the show. Oh, all right, then. Today, so, yeah. And we... So we it's talk, of course, about Madison's argument of, of men not being angels and his point that it's in politics that our humanity is reflected, not as angels, but as humans. Well, historically, there have been two kinds of eschatologies, personal eschatologies and historical ones. Historical ones are both religious and secular, uh, the historical eschatologies that we're most familiar with have to do with the relationship between the state and Christianity and start with Constantine, but Marx and Marxism was a secularized version of a historical eschatology. But there are also personal eschatologies. As I said, people may believe that the soul is immortal, does not die, goes somewhere, may or may not be rejoined with the body, um, will be redeemed if it is worthy of being redeemed and so on. <clears throat> These eschatologies, the personal and the historical, should never be confused. And in politics, the danger comes from applying eschatological categories to political entities. Uh, and we have a lot of experience of the catastrophic consequences of that misapplication. Uh, so I, that much is liberalism, that much, as far as I'm concerned, is the, if you'll pardon the expression, the takeaway from the history of Jewish messianism. Uh, and now it goes to the question in American culture of the search, the thirst for redemption and affirmation. And well, that's not the same thing, actually, though it can be experienced the same way. Uh, but the, the, the general cult of change, sometimes change is emphatically not our friend. Yeah, you have a wonderful phrase in the, the essay where you, you say uh, Nietzsche set us up for this, uh, which was, uh, I think, a brilliant observation. I wonder how this fits in, Leon, to one of the most controversial areas. I, you don't need me to tell you this, of the cultural politics in America today. Um, of very grim uh, subject, yeah. Of, of the transformation of our gender, of our decision to reunite ourselves for, or for some people to want to reunite themselves with what in their mind is their true gender. Uh, is this, do you think that 
some people might read this and say it's it's an argument against well, gender transformation or an argument in favor. I couldn't work it out. That's a complicated subject. There's no question. Excuse me while I have some of my champagne here. Excellent. That's a that's a complicated question. It's certainly true that medical technology has given us many more choices and has expanded the 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 inventory of possible transformations. That is certainly the case. One can now contemplate changes to things that used to be regarded as final and unalterable. Uh, it is certainly the case that there are people who genuinely feel that they are in the wrong body. Uh, I have no doubt about that. But that's so, so their argument might be, I don't want to I'd be careful to put words into their mouth, but their argument might be that they're returning to something more, Yes, look, truer. you know, redemption has always or almost always been uh, a return to a past golden age, a restoration of a bliss uh, that, or a contentment that was lost. And uh, This is certainly true in his, historical eschatologies. It's often true in personal eschatologies. Uh, but um, yes, so the fact that people feel that they are returning does not make it any less of a change in uh, as regards what they propose to do or do my only concern look it's my own view and this is a, a, a conversation for another day is that the distinction between man and woman should not be uh, eradicated for many 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 reasons uh and that things that we regard, many things that we regard as fluid may not be as fluid as we think they are, or their fluidity may not be as much of a blessing as we think they are. But that, that's for another day. It's, again, it's a free country and people are doing what they want and uh, it's the bargain of freedom. But the question then that has to be asked is the, 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 has, has to do with the wisdom with which these decisions are made has to do with the mentality uh, with which in which these decisions are made. Uh, you know, thinking responsible adults are free to do with their body what they wish. I have misgivings about children being educated in options that they actually cannot understand or <clears throat> adequately analyze, even if they are feeling this discomfort in their body, which I do not gainsay. I really don't. Uh, you know, uh, I'm reminded of a very wise liberal judge in Cambridge, Massachusetts, many decades ago said to me, we were having a conversation about freedom of choice in matters of religion. And he said to me that the only people who, who have freedom of choice in matters of religion as adults are people who were indoctrinated in religion as children. And there is some merit to that because you need to know what it is that you are rejecting. If you don't know what it is you are rejecting, then you're not rebelling or changing. You're acting ignorantly, maybe under a great deal of suggestion or influence uh, and so on. 
I can hardly think of a more repercussive trans transformation than changing one's sex, one's gender. And so this is a decision that I think should be taken very, very seriously, regardless of what one thinks about the, the philosophical and other considerations in the background. And uh, it's a little bit, more than a little bit disturbing to watch something this grave and this fundamental uh, become basically a cultural fashion. Uh, and that troubles me. That troubles me because I think it, it lightens the load when it comes to trying to assess this change responsibly, which is all I ask, which is, I mean, I ask, who am I to ask? But it's all I ask. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say about that particular change, which I guess is not all that different from how I feel about other changes. I think that uh, American capitalism, for example, has never been more contemptible than it is now. I think that the monopolistic tendencies and the general heartlessness of American capitalism uh, is shocking even by the standards of capitalism's history. Uh, but I do think that the idea that a transformation from capitalism to socialism would solve our, all our problems, or indeed any of our problems, flies in the face of, of really all of what we know about socialism's performance, both in economics and politics. So when it comes to considering that transformation, and as I say, given the the magnitude of economic inequality in this country, and given the, the, the bleak life prospects that so many Americans face economically um, in the alleged land of opportunity, uh, I take seriously the bitterness against capitalism, but the thirst for a change, the thirst to be rid of capitalism is not a serious analysis. And so when I think about capitalism's strengths and not only its weaknesses, as compared to the strengths and weaknesses of socialism or other kinds of other sorts of economic arrangements, I come to the conclusion that uh, that the, trend, the, 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 the aspiration to socialism is a good example of a dangerous fantasy of change, and that what capitalism really requires is ferocious regulation, ferocious regulation uh, of the sort that I'm not sure the Democratic Party will ever get around to, to, to supporting because of their massive debt to some of the entities and people they, they're going to have to regulate. Um, but again, I think when one thinks about that kind of transformation, it is not enough to be uncomfortable or disgusted by one's present situation one has to then move on to the next step consider the alternatives and well etc etc uh so i think that you know i don't particularly want to be redeemed uh i have no interest in redemption because i think that redemption will erase too many good things and destroy too many good things and nobody is sure what's on the other side of it, at least of those redemptions we haven't yet experienced. By now, historically, 
we've experienced enough his, uh, redemptions to know that they generally do not end happily. And in terms of personal redemptions, I'm a little bit, I feel about change a little bit the way uh, in Oscar Wilde's play, about in Salome, Herod and Herodias are out on a terrace and there's a shooting star. And one of them, I forget who, points to the shooting star and says, it's a miracle. And the other one says, I don't believe in miracles. I've seen too many. Yeah. Um, and I've seen too many changes. I've seen all kinds of movement, uh, some of which seems admirable to me, most of which seems desperate or recreational to me. Leon, um, you talk about America as a teleological nation. You talk about yourself as a as a liberal. You should be a liberal. You're the editor of Liberties magazine. Um, and you are a liberal, of course. You oh, know yeah. You um, or you're oh, an yeah. aspiring liberal. You are. You want to be a liberal. Um, no, no, I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal. I mean, I, I've spent most of my life trying to understand what I should believe. And I am, a, I am you know, I, I, am, I don't want to say I'm an unapologetic liberal and that liberalism, like every other political creed, has things to apologize for. But as far as I'm concerned, what liberalism has to apologize for is considerably less offensive or immoral than what the alternatives have to apologize so for. So maybe, would it be fair to say that in terms of your essay and the, this idea of teleological nations like the US and the kind of te teleological characters that are increasingly inhabiting the US, um, there's no room for luck. There's no room for arbitrariness. And to be a liberal, to be a real liberal, one has to reject the, te the teleological narrative and accept that luck is 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 the heart of the matter and that you can never quite explain how things work out. No, I, I don't think that's right, Andrew. I think that, I mean, luck obviously plays an important role in life and no ideology or political philosophy or for that matter, government can fully or even partially master it in certain circumstances. But, um, and the centrality of luck in American life, and there was a great book written by a great historian named Jackson Lears just on this subject in which he traces the origins of our idea of luck all the way back to, to American Christian ideas of providence. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to be said about luck. I think that the liberalism that I have in mind, uh, it, it's, it's, it recognizes the limits of human control over affairs, over human affairs, uh, it does not believe, whereas it does ardently believe in policy and in government and believes that government is one of the most sublime creations of human civilization. Uh, and whereas it does believe that wise and effective policy is justified and it will change certain things. It does not believe in the total control of human affairs by human beings. It does not believe that human history will ever reach its end. I mean, I mean, in its philosophical end, uh, not, I mean, if, if the climate one day uh, burns us alive, it will have reached its end. But, but it does not believe that 
that human history will ever be perfected, completed, uh, fulfilled, redeemed, and so on. It is, a, a it is the most meaningful way I know in, in political uh, life to live in the present and to seek justice in the present, which is the only temporal mode in which you can seek justice. So, so maybe, maybe let me revise that. Um, maybe, and this comes back to your point about the evils of American capitalism and the inequalities in American life. Maybe in America these days, there is no luck. It depends who you, what, what, what status you're born into. It's increasingly a, a yeah. feudal place. If you're born into the upper classes, you're pretty much going to be fine. And if you're not, you won't be. I think that's right. I think that one way to describe the social and economic crisis in America has been the steady decline of opportunity for many, many millions of people. And I think that uh, since we believe in personal freedom and in social freedom and in political freedom, one of the freedom one of freedom's greatest gifts is mobility. We've always believed in mobility. Uh, the, the myth of the frontier had to do with our belief in mobility. Horatio Alger was about our belief in mobility. There was uh, always a sense that you could uh, find a better situation and, and rise to a higher social and economic situation. Fitzgerald's famous sentence about how there are no second acts in American lives is really one of the dumbest things that was ever said about America. Um, yeah, and well, the, the idea of it, it is a country, I certainly know from my own experience, of second and third. Oh, second yeah. and third and fourth and fifth. That goes back to the question of the religion of change and so on, and the hostility, the, the cultural prestige of change and movement. But when you leave aside... I want to leave aside my view that our appetite for movement is downright pathological. Um, mobility is one of the promises of freedom, which means that you're right. It used to be that the being born into a class was a predicament, but not a destiny. And there were ways of rising above or getting out of this predicament. And it's getting harder and harder and harder to do that, which is why in some ways, you know, people always go on about what an idealistic people we are. But in some ways, we may be living in the era of the shipwreck of American idealism about America itself. And, right, and, it's, uh, and in your language, in this wonderful essay, America is a teleological nation and, and a, a country addicted to the ideology of, of change where there is no change. And that's well, sort of contradiction that's right. and anger. That's right. To be more precise, I think America, I should have said, well, I don't know the context there. More precisely, Americans are a teleological people, many of them, many of them. Uh, there are certainly many people here who, in our country who both in religious and secular ways have a very, very powerful appetite for the end of days. And you can call the end of days anything you want but for the end of days. And um, yes, I think you're right. It is a fundamental paradox that in a country that was formulated by people with, with a deep and revolutionary anti-eschatological mentality, 
I mean, really, it was the, the wisdom of those men, and they were men, um, the wisdom of those men always amazes me because they were living at the very beginning of the age of secular eschatological ideologies, and they didn't take the bait. They didn't take the bait the way they took the bait in Paris or later elsewhere. So uh, it is a huge paradox that in this anti-ideological, anti-eschatological framework, anti-redemptive framework, we are a country of millions of people with no patience for, uh, for history, with no patience for um, experience, uh, with a great impatience to be, to be done with whatever they're at. And, and to move on, which should, you know, move on should be on, it's the American slogan. It should be, instead of in God and tr in God we trust, the coin should say move on. Uh, and yes, that you're right. That is, that is a very paradoxical situation. I mean, if the doc, if the doc villain would be great to have him back, I'm sure if he came back, you'd publish him in Liberties. If he came back, what he would find was the very France that he contrasted democracy in America with. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we, one of the problems, and I, I, one of the problems with our situation now is that, you know, we call it polarization. The fact is that the American founding and the American system has no fantasy of perfect unanimity, none of total general social agreement. France does, that's Rousseau, that's the general will. Madison recognized that there will never be perfect social agreement, ever. And that the aspiration to achieve it would be dangerous. So, you know, we are, we are a very different sort of democratic republic than France is. Uh, you know, we have now taken the American recognition of conflict to an almost absurd length. It reminds me of my favorite joke in the world about the man sitting on the, de on the deck of the Titanic at the bar, staring at his glass and muttering, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, I mean, we, you know, we have turned conflict into our reality which is where we are now. But the answer is not social unanimity or any kind of unanimity. Um, and this is the difference that we were taught to live with by the founders. This is the difference that was recognized not by Derrida or Deleuze or, or Said or any of them. This was the difference that was recognized by Madison and George Mason and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and and it's it's a part of our system. It's a part of our system. And the Tocqueville. Huh? And the Tocqueville. It's it's a wonderful. Yes. Idea. I mean, it's how many words is it, Leon? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've been writing no more long. than a couple of thousand. There's so much there. I want to move on. To, I, I I don't want to spend. I, I don't want to steal your whole morning. 
whatever you want. No, no, no. It's I warn I warn your listeners. It's much more than a couple of thousand, but never mind. What is it? Five thousand? It's more than that. You know. You know. I have right, know, how many is it then? How many? I think it's work? about eight or something like eight. that. Well, but, I, it. it but I have like, you know. This I, is my I have this joke about liberty. Like two thousand. I have this joke about liberties, Andrew, which is that you know the the New York Times on online. If it lists an article and says reading time four minutes, and I suggested to my colleagues, to Celeste and Bill, that on our website it should say reading time four hours, four days. Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, but it's it, but it reads well. A couple of other things. I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about America because it's not just an essay on America. No, it's, it's really not. Essay. Um, I was the one thing I was really. In, amazed and I found rather amusing is one would never expect to find in a Leon uh, uh, Weaseltier essay a defense of technology. Oh, uh, in an odd kind of way, you're defending AI. Everyone else is paranoid about AI, and you're seeing continuities. You're seeing Nietzsche in AI. Here's what I yeah. I'm glad you noticed that. I felt very perverse and a little uncomfortable about that, but it's the conclusion I came to, and here's why. I'm not, to put it mildly, uh, a happy reader of AI. I think AI is going to be the latest and probably the most catastrophic uh, of the technologies that we adopt before we have the faintest idea about them. Uh, you know, it took about... You know, Altman put ChatGPT up on, a, I don't know, on a Monday. And by Thursday, I knew people who were using it. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely insane. I mean, it is, a, you know, social scientists talk about cascades or contagions. To me, it's more like an addiction to the new. But in any event, my, my view is, and it applies really to all historical change, that there is no, there is never a complete change ever. No revolution is complete. Uh, there are always continuities that get across the frontier of change, some good, some bad. You mentioned Tocqueville. He was the one who really put this mentality on the map in some way in his book on the Ancien Regime and the French Revolution, in which he pointed out about post-revolutionary France, how much actually stayed the same. And when it comes to personal change, in my life, but when it comes to personal changes in people's lives and historical and social changes, my question is, what are the continuities and what are the discontinuities? And it is clear to me that AI is um, in many ways a colossal, corrupting and corrosive influence upon many human activities and that a great deal of cheap and easy work is about to flood us and that a great deal of of intellectual corruption is about to flood us and so on however i went to a show of um of images generated by dali and i was surprised to discover that i found some of the images very beautiful very interesting uh and very familiar. I, uh, very familiar. Well, but but I mean, there are. But that was one of the things that was so interesting, is in terms of continuities. As I wrote, they 
the, the images that I saw belong in certain traditions that already exist in visual art, you know, in surrealism, for example, uh, especially in surrealist photography. These were not photographs. These were artificially generated images. Uh, but, but still, they were legible to me as images to which one could put the question of are they beautiful or not. And then I thought some more, and I thought, well, it is not the case that, uh, that these images were not in any way made by a human being because the stupid or, excuse me, extremely unprecedentedly brilliant machine was responding to prompts that which were being carefully designed by a figure who can only be called the artist in the way that uh, a painter, you know, you don't, you don't hold a paintbrush responsible for a painting. Now, obviously, the responsibility of the painter for details of a painting is greater than the responsibility of the prompter on Dali for the details of the images that are generated. However, there are styles of painting, of abstract painting, but not only of abstract painting, in which the artist is perfectly content to let luck, since you brought it up, uh, or serendipity do some work on the canvas. So the more I thought about this, I thought I decided that on, about this aspect of AI, I was not going to join the hysterics. As I, you know, as I wrote, and as I say, a certain degree of hysteria about AI, or at least about its, the unbelievable velocity of its acceptance and adoption uh, is justified, is justified. Uh, and the media that talk this up and get all goose fleshy about it are doing their society a huge disservice a huge disservice. Uh, and certainly the, the, the Congress has absolutely no idea what we're talking about. If we are going to regulate things, which I think we will have to, uh, and if we are going to even bust up some companies, which I would cheer, um, still they don't know what we're talking about yet. So I think that, uh, but I decided that in this realm, I was not going to join the hysterics because, like with everything, there are good things that result from, um, from, from changes. Do I wish that AI didn't exist? Yes. Do I wish that the Cuban revolution had never happened? Yes. Do I think that healthcare and the rights of women in Cuba were improved and that was a good thing? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's there are continuities and there are discontinuities in all revolutions. And that should be a methodological assumption when one lives in revolutionary situations, which is where we are now in many ways. Final question, Leon. Um, people watching will see many CDs behind you. You're a, a music maven, a music lover. And there's a musical quality, lots of musical references. Um, you begin with a reference to Beethoven's 15th string quartet, um, the, the celestial quality and how hard you find it, I guess, to, to listen. But there's a musical quality, a kind of tragic seriousness to the essay, which you end on. Well, thank this is you. no final 
Ninth Symphony. It's much more of a quiet string quartet. You end with Michael Gerson and his death. Yes. Perhaps you might say something about him. I was very moved by this. Uh, I know Pete Weiner, he's been on the show. He's a big admirer of you and your work. And there's something, I don't, I never knew Gerson, but there's something very serious about Weiner and, and, and you bring that out with Gerson too. Maybe you could say something about yeah, sure. him and why you end with him. Well, Mike, Mike was a conservative, Christian conservative, Christian evangelical uh, columnist, passionately at the top of the list of conservative anti-Trumpists, a man who regularly chastised his own congregation about their enthusiasm for Trump. And I've always believed that a sure sign of a person's intellectual honesty or courage is his or her willingness to chastise his or her own congregation. And Mike did that. Mike had terrible, uh, so I admired him enormously and we were friends. Uh, I, he had terrible medical problems. He had a very hard life. He died very young. Uh, he was someone who had what I can only describe as true faith. Do I mean that by that, that his faith was objectively true? I can't mean that because there's no way I could believe in things that Mike believed. But do I mean that his faith was true in the sense that it was incorruptible and deep and, uh, and, 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 and animated him in his achievements? Absolutely. And I have always been a little, I've always respected, and in certain cases, I've always been a little in awe of people who have true faith. Now, I appreciate that in politics, we call them true believers, and they're very dangerous people, and I understand that. Uh, Michael was not a dangerous person. He was responsible. He was the man responsible for PEPFAR, which has saved 25 or more million lives from AIDS in Africa. Uh, but... There is something about people who can believe something without irony and without, I'm going to say, even skepticism that I admire because I'm not capable of it myself. Do I want to be capable of it? Depends what day you ask me. Uh, but so when Mike was in at, at the memorial service for Mike, which was at the National Cathedral, where some years earlier he'd given a very moving and very influential in the sense of helping a lot of people, a very moving sermon on his own depression and on the subject of depression generally. At the National Cathedral, there was a memorial service and his friend, Scott Baker, who is a television personality, I believe, um, gave a very moving eulogy. They were, they were at college together, I think. And he told that he told me at the assembled that he went to visit Mike in the hospital. And Mike said the most amazing thing to him. He said that somebody, a woman, I'm not, it, I, it's, it's reported more faithfully in the essay because I contacted Scott or Pete. Anyway, somebody who could get me the exact text of what Scott said. Um, and that, that a woman had come to Mike in his last days and said to him 
that he should no longer feel accountable for the proper recognition of objects. He was no longer living in a world of objects. And this obviously had to do with Mike's cognitive condition as his disease advanced to the end. And Mike reported this to Scott happily, happily, as if he had been um, elevated to a higher spiritual plane. And when I heard that at Mike's memorial service, I was just knocked out because, you know, I have never had the audacity to call all mystics liars or, or, or masters of illusion or, you know, pathetic, deceived people. Um, I have, it, that's a complicated question. And uh, it is impossible for me to deny, which is why thinkers like William James and the late Tolstoy always nag at this liberal. It is impossible for me to deny that, that all of life cannot be explained materially and so on and so on and so on. And Mike, my friend, a man I knew uh, whose faith I admired, had obviously experienced something that he regarded as a translation to a higher state. You call it a thin, or he called it a thin space. All right, yeah. And I was, first of all, so happy for him that I had a tear in my eye. But also, um, this was an example of a change, of the sort of change that A, explains why, as I said earlier, and in the earlier in the essay too, I'm not saying we never should change or that there is no such thing as change. I mean, there were there are philosophers, starting with the pre-Socratics, who believe that change is an illusion, right? And Buddhists believe that change is essentially an illusion. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But, um, but this Mike's Mike's whispered account of what had happened to him, to his friend, as he lay on his deathbed was for me, it humbled me. And it reminded me that there are changes for which a purely secular uh, or psychological account cannot provide a, a, a satisfactory explanation. And but I'm this not was going to go I mean, beyond that because yeah. I'm not in the business of, you know, of of, of summoning ghosts and things. Um, but yes, so I put Mike's experience there, sort of as a way of, uh, of 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 qualifying or trying to make clear the the message about change that had preceded it in the essay. Ron, it seems to me. I mean, you begin with suggesting that you've pondered your failure to live up to the romance of transformation. Mm -hmm. You end with Gerson and his, um, his experience of, of, of a thin place. But Gerson's, this was not the romance of transformation, was it? Well, no, but it was about the reality of transformation. Right, the reality of transformation rather than the romance of transformation. Yeah, it was about, it was an, it was about the undeniable reality of transformation and about the undeniable reality of the multiplicity of the planes on which we can live, of the levels on which we can live. 
and that means about the 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 undeniable reality of the movement between planes, which can either go upward or downward. I mean, not all change is positive, and some changes, personal changes, are catastrophic, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just a way of leaving a question mark, uh, of trying to suggest that my criticism of the transformational mentality was not a matter of complete certainty with me. Yeah, it was a, it was a string, uh, it, the essay is a string quartet rather than a symphony. And uh, finally, finally, I just can't resist doing this, uh, sure. Leon, and then we, then we have to end because sure. I, I know you're busy. You, you begin the essay with this wonderful quote from Seabold. The heaviest stone that melancholy can throw at a man is to tell him is that he is at the end of his nature. And I wonder whether that's the business of the philosopher to, to throw that heavy oh. stone. Is that what you're doing in your own way? Look, uh, you know, the Zabal quote was a little bit uh, a counterpoint to the essay in that Zabal was warning against, he, one of his, he was warning that one, um, definition of melancholy is the feeling that one no longer has anywhere left to go. And uh, and so that was, again, like the very ending of the essay was, was a counterpoint to it. I'm more concerned not with, I'm concerned with people or with ideas of change that aren't either uh, are, are compassionate like Zabold's or mystical like Mike Gerson's, but that basically preach a kind of promiscuity, a kind of addiction to, you know, a sort of proteanism, according to which one just, today I'm identifying as this, tomorrow I'm identifying as that, uh, you know, I'll try this, I'll try that, as if, uh, you know, as if, as if, all the world's a stage and everybody are players, which is not what I think. Um, so uh, I was trying to criticize a sort of spiritual promiscuity, which I, which I see as the heart of um, the, 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 the change cult. Uh, that, that's really what it was. And um, Zabal's ep epigraph and Gerson's the peroration about Mike at the end were really, um, they were counterpoints. They were about non-promiscuous change, uh, which certainly is real and something to which one should aspire.